Hey everyone, welcome to episode number seven of Musicians for Mental Health. On this podcast, I speak with musicians about mental health openly and honestly without the veil of lyrics. We're not mental health professionals, we're not licensed therapists or counselors. We are people that have had our own personal experiences with mental health and want to shed light on these topics. On this week's episode, I had an amazing conversation with an artist named Mel Taven. This is a very long conversation. I do want to forewarn you if you didn't look at the description of this podcast. Um, Mel and I had a very long conversation. Honestly, this could be split up and probably be two or three episodes, but we're not going to do that because I think the way that Mel and I's conversation went, it all flows together. It all ties together, and there's just so much that's interwoven within itself um, through the different topics that we discussed that it would do it an injustice to break this apart. So I do understand it is a very long episode. Uh, most people probably won't listen to it in one solid playthrough, and that's totally fine. I, I get that. But Mel and I had a pretty in-depth and heavy conversation. We talked about a few things that I do want to give the trigger warning for, um, and those things are, we talked about Asian racism um, and the Stop Asian Hate Movement. Um, and Asian racism can go both ways, whether it's racism from whites, blacks, other ethnicities towards Asians, um, or even Asian versus Asian. And, you know, Mel has a lot of personal experience with that and was able to shed a lot of light on that, which was awesome for me. And I think it's going to be awesome for you guys to hear the, the power of her story. Um, we also talk a lot about depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and suicide. So please be aware of those topics as you listen to this. Um, as always, kind of listen with caution if you're susceptible to these things triggering um, your traumas or, you know, these thoughts that you're battling. So... Um, I think it's important that you guys know this, especially if this isn't your first episode that you're listening to. The goal with this podcast is to educate. It is to provide assistance in some form um, and really to shed light on these topics so that the people that feel like they're alone in what they're battling can see that they're not, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are going through similar traumas or similar um, experiences and there's help out there. There's life out there. And, you know, I think it's important that we all remember that. Um, huge shout out to Mel. I, at the end of this, hopefully you guys make it that far. I am going to talk about her music as well. Uh, but definitely want you guys to go over, give her a follow on Instagram, Spotify, uh, you know, Facebook, anywhere that you're socially active. Um, she's super active on Instagram, um, and that's actually where we kind of connected. So, um, again, huge shout out to her for taking the time. We originally had this slotted as like a 
roughly one hour uh, time slot, you know, planned conversation. And we ended up talking for nearly two and a half hours. Um, Again, I understand if you can't listen to this in one solid playthrough, but please make sure you listen to this whole episode. Um, It is a very, very important episode. So, with all of that being said, let's go ahead and dive in to my conversation with Mel Taven. So, uh, to kick things off, let's go ahead and do that introduction. Who are you and kind of a little background on yourself. Yeah. Uh, hey, my name is Mel Taven. Um, I'm a musician, singer-songwriter uh, based in L.A. And yeah, just uh, living it, living that Cali lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so we just made the comment before the episode part of this. You grew up in South Dakota. What was it like making that transition? Because obviously that's a huge transition from anywhere in South Dakota to L.A. Yeah, well, I didn't go right to L.A. from uh, South Dakota. I actually went to Berklee College of Music in Boston. And so that was my breakout moment. Uh, And it was really different. I mean, I, uh, as you can imagine, South Dakota is incredibly diverse. (laughs) So um, there was that, which I strangely felt a sense of belonging, but I couldn't put a word to it. Like I couldn't put any definition to that feeling that I felt because I had never felt it and I didn't know I needed it at the time. Um, You know, I saw my first homeless person, Um, public transportation was new. People kept saying that their apartment was a house and I got really confused. I was like, you have a house? And then it's like, no, it's just their home is their apartment and they live in the apartment. Um, so there was a lot of, yeah, breaking out. Uh, and then from there I moved to New York and that's where I learned how to survive. And then (laughs) basically, and then, uh, a little over a year ago, I moved here. Awesome. Yeah. So obviously like Boston to South Dakota would be a big deal, but Mm -hmm. New York to South Dakota is like, it's a different world entirely, right? Yeah. I would never, I would never come from a big city and go, go to South Dakota willingly. Right. <laughs> I would maybe if, if one would try, they wouldn't last very long. Cause it's like, like you said, it's very slow. Um, it's uh, in ways really out of touch. It's very, the Midwest is very set in its ways. Not that there's mm-hmm. anything wrong with it. Um, but there's a sense of lifestyle that just so isn't known to people on either coast and vice versa. Like right. the killers just released a new record called the pressure machine. And they basically go through recordings of people talking about their little town and how they hunt and how, uh, you know, opioids are big and how they go to church yeah. and, I just was like, yeah, okay, this sounds like growing up. But for right. other people, they're like, oh my God, places like this exist. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's their world, it's their life. And I think it's beautiful that you can live both lives, you know, but it's yeah. different. But, and I think it's one of those, like, you see both of them in movies, right? Or Hollywood in general. Yeah. But it's the very, like, stereotyped version of both of them. 
But then when you actually go experience it, it's like, oh shit, like rats in New York are a real thing and they really are the size of chihuahuas. Like, <laughs> what is what is this? <laughs> you know what? I don't think I ever saw my first rat until I moved to Boston. Wow. I could be wrong, but I think that's pretty accurate. Well, I mean, South Dakota, like you you had field mice, but that's not a rat, you know, like, yeah, oh, no. there's a big difference between a rat and a field mouse. <laughs> yeah, 100%, especially in the city. Yeah. No, I think that, like, uh, Hollywood's portrayal of the Midwest, I guess you could easily sum it up as, like, how you can get away with murder. Like, when mm -hmm. I think about it, if you're driving up and down the interstate in South Dakota, and it's just miles and miles of just clear land and you can just pull over and go anywhere and no one would know it's just like man the fact that that never happened to me or anyone that i know <laughs> blows my mind <laughs> but, but i think part of that comes into living in you know the midwest and even over to south dakota like the sense of community right like yeah. because it's small town everybody knows you you know things All like that so it's right it's a little more safe in the sense that i think people are more more conscious of the others around them whereas yeah. like in the big cities like yeah there's there's people around you but like you see a million faces when you walk down the street in new york mm -hmm. you don't know everybody it's mm -hmm. impossible right and you, you honestly, you do have to take a sense of selfishness when you live in a big city, because uh, it's truly survival in a sense. Whereas when you live in a small town Midwest, you know, environment, you can, you have the emotional uh, and mental capacity to care for others <laughs> because yeah. you're not out there it, trying to survive, you know. Even as simply as trying to cross the street, trying to cross the street in New York, like you better get across the street because they're not waiting on you walking out of the, the midwest, door people stop even not yeah but like in the midwest people will stop in the middle of a road like it's not even a crosswalk and they will wait for you to cross the road yeah people will lay in the middle of the road <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. fine it's like oh, okay yeah, yeah it, very different yeah it's it's got to be polarizing so as you made that tra transition kind of we're going to start diving into the mental health side of things mm -hmm. coming out of south dakota and going into boston like obviously there's some culture shock there and like you said a, a little bit of acceptance that you didn't realize you needed because the yeah. the south dakota is the color that it is and you know the the groups of people that are there are the ones that are there mm -hmm. um so kind of what did that do as you moved and then started being able to kind of evaluate your life? Um, I think it's really easy to really settle in, to really accept your surroundings when you grow up in the Midwest. And, you know, this is just coming from my experience personally. Everybody has their life and they're happy with it and they're gonna keep it this way. And it's, you know, it's precious and they're going to make money they're going to work hard they're going to pray and <laughs> they're going to you know do their everything they can to keep their little you know corner of life safe and so moving to a different you know part of the world essentially in my mind um it opened up the idea of i mean i think that most of my life i thought i 
want more than this little corner. <laughs> I want more than this little corner. I just don't feel like this little corner is enough for me. Hence why I moved. But when I really left, my whole entire mind expanded in the sense of when you're not constantly talking about making money and praying and being good um, and knowing how to make the best potato salad in the neighborhood, <laughs> your whole entire perspective changes. Everything is different. Things that people care about in big cities are very different than things that people care about in small Midwest towns. Yeah. Um, but then again, there's a lot of similarities like drug use, alcohol, you know, I mean, there's yeah. a ton of similarities and there are similarities in the sense that people do work really hard and people do, you know, go to church and they, you know, um, but I realized that there were faces that looked like me that were from where I'm from. Whereas the faces that looked at like me in South Dakota were also adopted. Right. So I finally started to meet people who were truly from Korea. Mm -hmm. And I've never, ever considered that in my head at all, that I would ever meet anyone that would look like me and actually, you know, walk the walk and talk the right. talk. <laughs> um, and that opened my brain too, in a sense, but it was, it was just kind of, it kind of just made you realize like, oh man, I was really sheltered. And, and it was also a sense of like, okay, I moved here and now I officially will never ever have anything in common going <laughs> forward with anyone that I used to know. Like life has truly changed because now I'm gonna experience all of these huge urban things and be exposed to this danger and this craziness that you see on you know, CSI. And <laughs> those people are gonna still stay in their little you know, corner with all of their beautiful things and they get to be safe and the craziest things will just be, you know, online or on TV. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we kind of make light of that, but it's a real thing, right? Like I think a lot of people that have lived in the Midwest or, you know, out up until the coasts their whole lives, like, what they see on TV is their perception of what yeah. that place is unless they've actually been. And mm -hmm. honestly, like I know people that I graduated high school with, I'm 36 years old now and they've never left Indiana, you know, yeah. like, and it's like, I've been, I wouldn't say I'm like super well-traveled, but like I've been to Ireland, I've been out of the state. Like, yeah, you've I been do, left. Do stuff. Like, yeah I've, I've done things and I'm like, how, how can you live in, in this? But to your point, it's that little safety box. It's that contentment of this is the way it's always been. I know that it's safe. I'm going to be okay here. And that's all I'm going to do. I don't need anything else. What do you mean? Why would I? I have everything I need. Why would I? I don't, you know, it's just like, okay. And then there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, when people, when people, back home find out that I'm you know living in New York and in South Dakota New York is just this glimmering glitzy rich you know the big apple Times Square you don't see you know the downtrodden neighborhoods you don't see the struggle and you don't you just you don't see those things when it's aired on TV so so many people back home thought I was just so rich because she's living in New York
right it's like it's not rich and the same thing with LA people are like oh wow she lives in California now she lives in LA she's a celebrity it's like no (laughs) no as much as as we'd love to be not yet you know um no but that's totally true like like New York I think a lot of people associate sex in the city yeah uh how I met your mother like Oh, okay. Yeah, friends, like, but in real life, like, yeah, that's a portion of what New York is. It's probably 5% of what New York is. Yeah. The the rest is so drastically different than that. Yeah. And it, it spans such a wide, diverse spectrum, right? Like, you've got the really ritzy and glamorous parts, and the neighborhood that you can't walk through you can't you know like mm-hmm. there's no safety in certain areas and it's mm-hmm. it's such a dichotomy yeah within one city oh totally you could find yourself in this beautiful you know greenwich apartment schmoozing with like celebrities and drinking fancy wine and trying not to spill it on really nice carpets and then you can also in the same night have to you know clutch your mace and- yeah and your keys and make sure that you get home safely. It is weird. It is a dichotomy of like things change truly in an instant. A New York minute is real. Don Henley was right. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's literally for people that haven't ever been or don't fully grasp what we mean. It's literally crossing a street. Yeah. Once you hit a certain street number and you walk past it, you're in a totally different environment. Yeah, different blocks. You could be one block and save the second block to walk to the next block is dodgy. It's very different. I think as well as when you walk out your door, you could totally die that day. The risk of you dying walking out your door in New York <laughs> is different than the risk of you dying walking out your door in South Dakota. But yeah. there is a beauty of it where it's, almost a humbling experience because you walk out your door and you hear like 17 different languages while you're walking down the street right. and you smell all these smells good or bad and you hear your sensory overload overload is crazy like when I moved here where things are calmer and quiet and there isn't like 17 sirens and you can't hear the train I realized the years of sensory overload that <laughs> and how much stress that really does you know give you um yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's a complete game changer. And if you can live in New York, you for sure can live anywhere. Uh, so I'm happy I did it, but I'm also happy that I get a little bit of a break. Yeah. And I, I think, no, I think that's a perfect example that, you know, like a lot of Midwest people are not equipped to live in a big city. Yeah. But big city people could survive in a, in a little town. Yeah, big city people would be bored. Yeah. Um, yeah yeah. so let's talk a little bit about um being korean american and being adopted and things like that and then like you said just a little bit ago like coming to boston and starting to see people that look like you but are also native you know to korea or their family is at least native to korea that kind of you said like it obviously opened your mind, but how did it change your perspective of yourself? Um, so growing up, I, I wasn't exposed to my Korean heritage. Um, something I really resent. 
<laughs> about my upbringing. Uh, but you know, out of out of sight, out of mind. And when yeah. you're constantly told your whole entire life that it doesn't matter what you look like, and the the theory of I don't see color is accepted you truly kind of get washed away and you forget to consider yourself different because different isn't necessarily good because white people don't understand how to explain how to be comfortable as a different person in a different race because how would they be able to put that into words so as a person who never ever had any kind of korean proper korean examples growing up coming into an environment that had a ton of them including white people who knew the language, who lived in Korea, who had good Korean friends, were way more Korean than I was. (laughs) It really opened my mind to uh, how do I put it into words? It really kind of was like, oh shit, I've I've have a lot of making up to do, you know? Because it was embarrassing when people would come up to me and try to speak Korean and I didn't know what the fuck they were saying. <laughs> I didn't even know there's a Korean response that you basically just say, they, which is like, yep, uh-huh, sure. And, and it's, a, have that. it's a good, like, <laughs> you just like go straight to that word. I didn't even know that at the time. And so um, I think that it really opened my mind to you have a lot of learning to do. <laughs> you are not like you have just been my hedge was trimmed down <laughs> to the <laughs> and I had to regrow. But it was it was nice to know that. And to be honest, I wouldn't be the person I am today without, you know, being put into positions where racism was in my face more than it was in white culture you know like koreans are very they can be incredibly racist against other korean people and if you move your face like a white person if you walk like a white person if your hair is a specific specific way if you can't have if you can't speak korean you're a disappointment and so not only was i exposed to white racism for being Korean. Right. Now I'm exposed to Korean racism for being white. Right. So it was completely different. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. No one warned me about this when I went to Berkeley. Right. I just didn't know what it was. I just, I was just like, oh geez. So I'm not white enough and I'm not Korean enough. Uh, okay, I guess I'm just gonna go to college and figure it out. Hopefully, people like me. Right. <laughs> you know, that was this awesome personality. So hopefully, they start listening. But yeah, um, it's kind of like you know, growing up, I would imagine it's kind of like here's a jigsaw puzzle, but we're not gonna show you what the picture is. So good oh. luck putting it together. Yeah, kind of. It's like, hey, here's a math problem, no numbers, but you got to solve it in ten minutes. Go. And if you don't, you're a disappointment to everybody in your life, including yourself. And you shouldn't, like, it's just the pressure that gets put on you as an Asian American person in the Midwest or in any small town. The model minority myth rings tried and true. Um, And the pressure that's put on you to be the best and 
to find something you're really fucking good at because why why wouldn't you be really really good at something you're asian right you're not good at math what are you talking about i didn't have the best time in high school um because i was incredibly distracted and i didn't like any of my classes and i wasn't really incredible friends with people and so i would carry all of my books at the same time every day to give off the impression that i was overachieving in academia when in reality it was just it was so sad to think back and just be like wow the things that you did to encompass that idea so people just shut the fuck up and leave you alone is a sense of survival skill that i think a lot of asian adoptee people do they put their head down and they just go forward and you don't have to be asian parents to know that tactic it's just it's in you so yeah i think that a lot of asian american people whether they choose to stay in you know the midwest or not i think that there's a part of them eventually that is like wow i maybe i should learn about this like before they have kids they're like maybe i should know more about what made all this you know (laughs) right and I, I think, you know, to your point there, the survival skills almost accepting the stereotype and the the racism, and I, I put air quotes around it because it it's positive racism, but it's still racism. Like, you know, a lot of people try to justify it. Oh, well, but it's not a negative thing that we think they're smart or whatever, but it's still racism. Like, yeah. if you just assume that black people are good at sports, that's still racism. Yeah, you're like, about a specific, you know, part of people because of the way they look and where they're from. Right, right. And so for you to just like, and obviously most people don't know any better or don't have any other option, like to just say, okay, well, I'm going to lean into this because it's easier for people to believe that about me than me to try to change their mind, especially at a young age, obviously. Yeah, I also had no idea how I would do that. Like... <laughs> I didn't know what Korean was. I didn't know what kimchi was. You tell me, I don't even know. I should probably ask someone. I don't think you can find Korean slash kimchi food in South Dakota, or at least where I grew up. Yeah, or it's like, you know, in a Walmart, it's like a one eight foot yeah. section of Asian Lots food. And that's what you have. <laughs> there's just a lot of, there's an ethnic food aisle yeah. and it's ramen. <laughs> <laughs> and Uncle Ben's, you know, instant rice. But yeah. it, I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there was, there's a part of me that looks back and goes, oh man, the way I grew up, that fucking sucked. And I wish I knew more than I knew now, right. you know, and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I cut myself slack because I'm like, really? No, how would you have found that? Think of your yeah. resources. There were zero. Think of the yeah. people around you. All the Koreans were adopted. You know? Right. So it's it's a different, it's it's different. It really showed me what could be yeah. instead of what is. You know? Yeah, for sure. Uh so then that transition from, from Boston to New York, mm-hmm. was that an easier transition because you were starting to figure out the identity at that point? Or was it no. still like a a shock of wow this really isn't what i thought it was new york was 
I had always kind of been in denial about digging into my uh, Korean heritage because I didn't know how. And yeah. it wasn't until, you know, when I moved to Boston, I realized like, oh, if I try this, I'm going to be completely judged by Korean people. <laughs> right. So why would I even do that? But I didn't find any liberation or any like motivation to be like, fuck it, what people say, you know, right. if you want to know it, you should know it. No way. I was not thinking that at all. And when I moved to New York, I moved with almost zero money. And I decided to move to New York because once you live in Boston for long enough, it, you get a ghost in every single fucking corner and you just gotta leave. Yeah. And I had a lot of friends in New York and it was close. So I was like, well, let's make the move. And it was super hard. It was very uncomfortable. The first time I went to a grocery store living there, it's different living there than it is visiting. And I found that out very quickly. Oh, yeah. um, I walked into a grocery store and this guy was standing at the front. I don't know what he was doing. He was just minding his biz. And he looked at me and he goes, let me guess. Let me guess. And I'm like, mm, uh-oh. <laughs> like, I don't know what he's going to guess. But I'm okay. <laughs> going to let him guess so he will leave me alone. You know? He's like, you're Chinese. You're Chinese. You have to be Chinese. And I just looked at him. I just blankly looked at him and I, I, it ruined my day. And I didn't at that time, I didn't know what I was. I was told I right. was Korean by people, but I actually don't, I didn't know, you know, what I actually was when people saw me. Um, yeah. But moving to New York was, the hustle was real. It was easy in a sense of like, you could walk into any restaurant and get a job. <laughs> like, easy um you can walk into any bar and get a gig it's just really you don't need to have like connections or promoters or anything like that um it was a sense of okay i'm gonna start working in restaurants to survive and then it wasn't until i was like okay after a year i was like okay maybe i should explore korean food because there were, you know, you'd go to Korean barbecue with your friends and it's just like, what the fuck is this? It's so good. And you don't know. And then all of your Korean friends look at you and they go, what's this? What's this? What's this? And you're like, fuck if I know. This is my first time. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, but you're right. It's like, okay, maybe I should get everyone to shut up. And so I started working in Korean restaurants and the people in Korean restaurants are truly the people who encouraged me and taught me a lot of things about being Korean. And I didn't get, oh, you're not a real Korean. And I didn't get, oh, you're a white person. It wasn't anything like that. It was, here's how you make kimchi jjigae. <laughs> and this is how you say hello. And this is how you say goodbye. This is how you bow. And it was just like, oh, I guess this is what I needed. So when I look back at my choice to move to New York, I guess it was great, but at the time it was horrible. <laughs> I really didn't, it was really hard to actually get my footing. Yeah, and I think something I want to touch on within that is finding community. Because obviously, from a racial standpoint, it's super important. But from a mental health standpoint, it's super important as well. And I think in your case, it, it kind of tied into both, right? Like, not to put words in your mouth, but not really having your own idea or knowledge of what your Korean heritage was, obviously weighed on you to some extent. And then when you found people that are bringing you in they're like no you're you're part of us like this is, will help you 
Yeah, it has to be like that. Oh shit, I do belong somewhere. Yeah, you know, I was really out of place. I was out of place with like how I identified. I was out of place with my sexuality. I was out of place with um, my mental health. It wasn't, I, I just wasn't, I was kind of all, I was a jigsaw puzzle, man. I was all over the place. And finding people who were patient enough and willing to stick around to watch this puzzle come together, you know, they're still in my life today, but you lose a lot of people along the way. You really do, because they get bored or irritated that they can't solve the puzzle. Um, yeah, I would say that coming into my own really happened uh, a, two years ago when um, I was on a, I was briefly on a television show and I was the only Asian person. I didn't know I was going to be the only Asian person. Right. I was quite disappointed. <laughs> and people fucking noticed that I was the only Asian person. So afterwards, I would get all these questions like, you know, I'm adopted. I don't know how to handle this. So-and-so says this. I look at myself and I want to be white or this thing really happened to me and I've never told anyone and it was so fucking heavy. Yeah. Meanwhile, I don't know what that, I don't know. I still don't know where I stand in my heritage. I don't know where I stand in my adoption. I don't know where I stand mentally. And all these people feel comfortable giving a complete stranger because they saw my face on TV all their life story. And it was really overwhelming because it was like, oh my God, I'm taking in your life story. I don't even know what mine is. I don't know how to talk about my own. Right. Uh, I can yeah. talk about food. Let's like talk about Hamilpajan, <laughs> not your, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think that forced me kind of, I don't know, it kind of just like pushed me into the water of like responsibility. Like, hey, you decided to go on this show and unfortunately you were the only Asian person and you made your bed and now you have a big responsibility to show up for these people. Yeah. Uh, and so that's when I really dug in and I started talking about it more and I watched documentary. I just educated the fuck out of myself. Yeah. And I got to the point where I was like, I'm going to take a 23andMe test. Because I thought, what mental clarity would that give me? Because my whole life I've had, I'm a question mark. Right. And I've had people come up to me going, you're Chinese, right? You're Chinese. Or yeah. you're half something. Or Koreans on me, I don't look Korean at all. Yeah. And... I took a 23andMe test and I found out that I was 100% Korean and that's what really kind of like drove the ship. Now I'm like, right. okay, now I can really walk the walk. <laughs> well, I, I think that identity is obviously super important because if you are, you know, mixed with something else, like, okay, but then how does that play into my heritage? If I'm Korean and Vietnamese, then... What about that side of the family? Or, yeah. you know, it, it changes everything. And I think what people don't understand uh, is like, especially on the the adoption of Asian children or honestly, children from anywhere else, whether it's, you know, South American children or whatever, like probably 98 those children no longer have a connection to people that are 
like them and can help them grow and understand what their heritage is. Yeah. And I, I totally get that. Like I was listening during the stop beginning of the stop Asian hate movement. Well, the known beginning that everybody else knows. Right. Yeah. Uh, There was an NPR podcast that was interviewing an Asian woman who grew up in like Kentucky and had like a Southern draw and she was adopted and she's married to a white man and she has biracial kids and she identifies as a white person, but the world sees her not as a white person. Right. And she has a, like, she's an Asian person with a Southern accent. And she was just like, how do I, how do I fit into this world that now hates me because of what I look like and they don't understand who I am. Right. And I think a lot of times that reality scares people and people are like, yeah, I don't want to know. I'm good. Again, that, you know, little corner of safety. Yeah. Um, You really have to be, I don't, uh, I don't know for sure if I wasn't pushed like that, if I didn't have, this moral obligation and responsibility. I don't know if I would have delved into my heritage. Right. Because I've never felt, no one's ever told me I had to. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's, so it goes back to the old saying, like, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Which is all well and good, except nobody really practices that very well. You know, so like, like you, 100% Korean, adopted uh-huh. into America, uh-huh. grew up in South Dakota. Realistically, you're as American as I am, who was, yeah. you know, born here. Yeah. But because of your appearance, people expect you to have, you know, all this rich heritage within the Korean community. And it's like, but why do we expect that? You know, just simply because of the way that you look. And we mm-hmm. say not to judge a book by its cover. But that's the very first thing that people do, especially to people of color, people of Asian descent, is, oh, well, where are you from? Yeah. South Dakota, asshole. What do, you, <laughs> what do you mean? Exactly. Where are you really from, though? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's easy to say that that's a morally wrong thing to judge a book by its right. cover. Um, but there's actually a really, I'm sure you've read it. It's a Malcolm Gladwell book called Blink. Um, and he essentially really justifies the helplessness that we have when we not necessarily judge, but the first thing that comes to our mind when we see a person, whether or not we acknowledge the thought or not that comes into our head, you will think something and it will be automatic and it won't be premeditated. And it's not always going to be anti-racist. Right. Yeah. And I think. The process, I think, of like acting after it. It's the, oh, I wonder what ethnicity she's from. Let's ask where she's from. No, but where are you really from? And you think it and then you say it and then you send it and then it's sent and you can't take it back. And it's, you know, that's the difference. Yeah. And I, I think within that, you know, part of that is the the Hollywood uh, like subconscious programming that we've gotten for so long, you know, we've seen on TV shows, this representation of Asian Americans, of 
black people of whatever so inherently we have like you said that that subconscious thought that comes up and then we just go hey but where are you really from ah shit like that's not the way that i should have asked that like and obviously if you're very first meeting someone that's probably not an appropriate question anyway but like <laughs> there there's better ways to ask it you know like <laughs> okay so are your parents from here like you know there's other ways to ask that same question that aren't a almost an attack okay but where are you really from yeah and there's you know i was listening to a podcast with Nora jones in it and she said that at first when people asked her that she got really annoyed and offended and now when people ask her that she gets really patient because those people who ask you that in such a way they don't know the vocabulary to say right. what they mean in an appropriate way. It's why they're asking it the way that they're asking it. Um, so there's that too, but I think that it's just a natural, like everybody's got a lot to learn and they're slowly learning it kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, th I think on the, the Asian side of things, it's coming from a 36 year old white man but I think on the Asian side of things is, to your point, you know, the, the quote-unquote recognized Stop Asian Hate movement mm -hmm. just started literally a couple years ago. But mm -hmm. realistically, it, it goes all the way back to we had internment camps for Chinese workers to build railroads, people. Like, we have oppressed and stereotyped and mm -hmm. done terrible things to Asian culture mm -hmm. for a very long time. But it's now starting to come to light finally and like i don't want to take focus away from any other race because obviously that's not fair either but like this new thing where all of a sudden we just oh we don't like asian people nope that's that's been a while it's really not new and i think you know a lot of it is i think a big reason why it still lives on today that asian hate is due to um our entertainment and how mm -hmm. asian people are perceived yeah and absolutely. how asian people again have had just to lean into it and put your head down and keep going um yeah. i think that things that i didn't even know have come up where i'm like you've got to be like uh the first people that were saved from the titanic were i believe chinese people and they were turned away to give their boat to white people yeah and that's not taught leo dicaprio <laughs> did not mention this right. you know, there's many things that are brushed to the side um and many things that we don't even give it a second thought like the way that we sexualize women in Asian yeah. and how fucked up it is. Yeah. Um, and how so many of Asian women have so many stories, you know, in their back pocket that they just don't feel comfortable to share yeah, because absolutely. nobody really sees it as a wrong thing to do because yeah. it's all justified in media, you know? Uh, sure, and it, it goes into like anime and stuff right like yeah. even on that side i don't want to say more so 
I think at the younger age group, it's easier for teenagers to get into anime than any sort of like Korean show or Japanese show. Mm-hmm. So like at that age group, they're seeing anime and in a lot of anime, women are just kind of objects. Mm-hmm. And so then subconsciously it starts ingraining that, oh, well, Asian women just, you know, they, they cook, they're, you know, these little side pieces or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so then as they grow up, it's like, well, that's, isn't that what, what's expected yeah. of your culture? And it's like, yeah. no, no, that's not. It, I mean, it's insane. Like in, in old black and white movies, you know, the Asian woman was a seductress and her vagina was slanted. And yeah. there's just so many fucked up things that women have had yeah. to deal with and they've become a source of blame for inappropriate sexuality among specifically men. And um, it's, it's just so interesting. Like when I look back at my good old college days where, you know, you, go, you get around and I would think about, and this might be too graphic, but it's real and people need to talk about this. Like I would yeah, think about sure. the fact that if I was doing, if I was having a one night stand, which many people do this, um, and I would be put in a position that was like so not humanly possible. <laughs> And it was like, it was like, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm out, you know, safe word banana. Like, what are you doing? And you know what right. they're doing is they're doing something that they saw a really limber Asian chick do on Pornhub the day before. And it's, right. it's so weird how it's just ingrained and considered okay because and justified because you saw it online. You saw it in a movie, you know? Yeah, Yeah. and within that, you know, I want to bring this up too, since you kind of brought it up. Yeah. Like, let's stop with this bullshit that it's okay for guys to have one night stands, but if a girl does it, she's a slut. Why is that any fucking different? There's there's zero difference. The city was so great. I never got into sex in the city, but I get it. Right. (laughs) But, and I, I, I think that that's still, that, still lives on you know like slut shaming mm-hmm. i don't even think the word slut should exist right but it does it was created by people who shame sexually liberated women yeah uh and i i i would like to think that i live in a world where that uh objectivity isn't shined on me anymore Right. But if I lived in South Dakota, 100%. Yeah. I say that confidently. If anybody's listening in South Dakota, <laughs> really consider your surroundings when you hear that. And if you feel offended, maybe you should open your eyes a little bit. But yeah, it's real. And I, I think that there are a lot of Asian women who become objectified based on their appearance sexually and wish that they just it makes you hate yourself right it's like if you you convince yourself that if you didn't look this way that wouldn't happen to you when it it is not true but you know when atlanta happened it was like oh it is true shit you know Um, on the on the sexual side of things it kind of adds in 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it kind of adds in like body dysmorphia to some extent where, Mm -hmm. okay, it's because I, I look this way and, you know, back to the slut shaming side of like, oh, well, I wanted to wear shorts today because it's 90 fucking degrees. Mm -hmm. So it's my fault that a guy grabbed my ass. Like, Mm -hmm. no, like how is, how are we still so set in this misconception around that, that it gets shrugged off, you know, think back to, uh, what was his name? Brock Turner gets convicted of rape, only spends like six months in jail because, well, it'll ruin his athletic career because he's a white man. Fuck off. Like, rape is rape. So what are we really leveraging here? It's yeah, it's insane. I think that it's also, I mean, I can only speak as an Asian person, but I think it's also incredibly triggering. Like when yeah. you grow up, when I grew up, when I was a little kid in a white environment, uh, growing up white, if you, you know, if you want to call it, I wanted to be white. I would pray to Jesus because that's who you spoke to about all your wishes. Right. <laughs> pray to Jesus every night being like, I just want to be white. I just want to be white. When like people hear that now and they're like, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, it's not because those were the words as a kid in reality, in an adult phrasing, it would be, I just want to be accepted. I just want to be seen. I just want to be respected. I, you know, but as a kid, it's like white people get that. So I wanted to be white and I wasn't. And then I had to really force myself to accept the fact that my eyes look this way and that I, you know, I, uh x y and z right right and now as an adult asian person you know now i have to really where is i going with this i really have to not be objectified about the things that i've tried so hard to accept about myself right you know like i fought so hard to love the reflection in the mirror and now I risk being harmed, killed, or sexually assaulted because of how I look in the mirror, you know? Yeah, Yeah. and I think, you know, to your point, representation is a big part of it, right? So like like you said earlier, you were on the show, you were the only Korean on the show, the only Asian on the show. Mm. And then people were like, oh, so representation of me. So now I can reach out and talk to them and and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I... we don't have to get super deep in religion, but one of the things that pisses oh, me off Oh, yes, so let's much, do it. Let's do it. Well, okay. So one of the things that pisses me off so much about especially American Christianity yeah. is the depiction of Jesus as a white man. Oh, yeah. Holy shit, people. You are so wrong. And like, but but, but if you bring it up. To, to piggyback off of that, Korean Jesus is also really real. Right, right. but but i think i think that obviously plays into wanting representation right like yeah this is how we want to identify and be represented totally but like when you have an actual debate with someone or conversation around it and you're like okay but you understand like he's from the middle east right there were there were three tribes in the middle east people don't consider in the midwest what do people look like in the middle east right right 
and I, I mean i think that could be said even about the midwest to asian you know like the prime example i you made the point the guy in new york or the multiple people i'm sure throughout your life yeah. miss identifying what asian descent you are because our representation of them in the u.s is fucked we do not typecast correctly at all oh yeah it's a oh this this character's chinese but yeah we'll put a japanese person in like yeah. okay but but that's not the same thing so now we've got this misconception ignorance whatever you want to call it i guess around how to identify mm -hmm. but at the same time we constantly tell people we shouldn't have to do that based on the color of their skin or how they look so you know we're in this super weird like don't do this but at first glance you need to tell who they are like okay, yeah how do I do that? where uh, where's the line drawn in the moral ground you know where's the chalk mark i don't understand i i I, I think it's double standard at its finest, but I also think yeah. that it's also, I don't know what I don't know. Right. So if I've never, if, if the only Asian person I've seen is a Chinese person, or if I watch The Hangover and I see Ken Jeong, who's a Korean person, talking a very heavily Asian accent, an American Asian, yeah. what Americans hear when they hear an Asian accent. Right. And people portray him as Chinese and they've never heard yeah. Korean before. You only know what you know, which. Yeah, absolutely. It's the reality. I'm not and, sticking up for racism. I'm, I'm just, as a person who lived in that area and as a person who also only knew what I knew. Right. It, yeah. It, I think it goes into, you know, we've kind of tackled Hollywood a couple times on this, but like, obviously the media and Hollywood is the, the prime culprit for a lot of this because the misinformation or the mis, the misimaging of anyone. They, even if we're going to take Asian out of it, cool, this, this black guy is from Brazil, but we're going to portray him as Cambodian. Like, yeah. that's, that's still not the same thing. Yeah. They're still very different, you know, so much. The culture is is vastly different. Mm -hmm. Indigenous people, the the Hopi are not the same as the Apache. Yeah. The, you know, the, the Mayans were very different than any other. Like, so why do we generalize all this stuff? And it's, I think, speaking totally out of my realm, I'm sure, but my perception of it is because we don't want to educate ourselves it's it's easier to just give this overlapping generalization than it is to say hey this is what korean culture actually is like yeah but in that same note too i think that people of color tend to use the phrase white people right there are many different kinds of white people and not right. all white people are bad it's not white people it's white supremacy culture <laughs> yes. that people of color don't like and i think that both sides need to change the voc their vocabulary yeah you know, i think that because the only way we're going to make this work this co-habitual 
peace on earth shit. <laughs> the only way we're going to make it work to dominate racism and to, you know, like alleviate social injustice and blah, 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 blah is if we as people of color have white people on our side. Because guess what? Guess who the white supremacist cultural people listen to? White people. Yeah. So we have white people on our side. Saying we, that, hey, you know? yeah, if there are white people saying, hey, this other white people are going to listen and be like, oh, shit, maybe that's fucked up. Like, let's start looking into this more. And I think to piggyback on one of your points earlier, if anyone just heard us use the the term white supremacist and got offended, reevaluate your fucking views because, and I think it, well. yeah, well, but I think it applies to everything. You know, if you hear someone say something and immediately you're offended, it's probably a you problem, not a them problem. It's what you perceive it to be. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait, hang on. If you're offended by that, are you a white supremacist? Do you right. participate in white supremacist culture? Do you know what white supremacy culture is? Google it, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, I think that even, you know, people of white descent don't understand truly what white supremacist culture is. Yeah. But that's, that's what we're against. I've, I grew up with white people. They were all fine. Not all of them are racist a lot of them were but Some not of all were. of them yeah. were, you know it's not fair for me to put them in the category of the racist ones right it doesn't make any sense as much as it doesn't make sense for you to put me in a category of you know what you view as an asian person right and if your first argument against being racist is oh well i have friends that are whatever race is being discussed yeah i got news for you uh -huh. you're probably in that boat <laughs> one time when i was a server at a korean restaurant um it was a very rowdy restaurant and it wasn't like fine dining or anything and uh this person who appeared to be white i'm not just gonna say white person but this guy that appeared to be white looked up at me and goes ong young <laughs> which uh is a poor example of saying annyeonghaseyo, which is hello, how are you in Korean? And I just kind of looked at him because I don't give responses to people who don't deserve it. And he looked at me and he goes, I can say that, you know, just completely like in defense, like, oh no, she's making me feel small. Right. What do I do, what do I do? I have to justify what I just did. Oh my God. Oh my God, she's not listening to me. And I, I just looked at him again and he goes, my girlfriend's Korean. And I looked at him and I was like, <laughs> do you want a cookie? He goes, what do you mean? I go, you think you can talk to me this way because you stick your penis inside of a Korean person? I don't understand this. I got in a lot of trouble. But <laughs> it's not, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I can say that because my wife's Korean or my wife's Asian. Cool. Like. Then, then she can say it. That doesn't fantastic. mean. Fantastic. 100%. Uh, somebody on Instagram, I can't, um, this really fantastic Korean musician does these like little jingles. <laughs> uh, and he has one that's just like, so you have a Korean wife? 
I have a Korean life. And it's so true because so many people will go on that defense and it's like, listen, I'm happy you have a wife. Maybe just call her your wife. I don't know, just a thought. Yeah, Do you go up to everyone and say, this is my Korean wife? Like, fuck <laughs> you. Right. And like, so A, obviously it is part of everyone's identity, but race should not be an identifying factor when introducing someone. Or totally whatever. not. Like, you know, no. like that, that should have zero bearing on whatever. But yeah. I, I also want to touch on, I, I really believe that there's a very large number of people that think that that behavior is okay and it's not cultural appropriation, but it absolutely is. Yeah. It, yeah. It is a hundred percent cultural appropriation to believe that, well, I can just, I can speak in this other language just because I, my wife is Asian or because, you know, I, whatever, whatever the case may be. I watch enough K-dramas, I can order kimchi jjigae. Right. And like, that being said, like, obviously, like you said earlier, you know, white people that lived in Korea that speak Korean. Mm -hmm. That is not cultural appropriation because they were there. They had in that culture to learn that language. And I'm not saying you can't learn other languages to just better yourself or, you know, mm -hmm. learn. But the way in which you, A, justify it, but B, present it is what yeah and trying to make it your own yeah when it's not justified yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah if, if yeah. you're a businessman and you know moving to japan learn japanese if mm -hmm. you're a 14 year old kid that just loves anime and you don't want to watch it with english subtitles or voiceovers learn japanese if you feel like learn japanese <laughs> right but know when it's appropriate to use it yeah 100%. There's actually, uh, I just went to um, uh, HBO's APA Visionaries, which is like mm -hmm. a Asian American film festival and the finalists. Yep. Uh, I think it's out on HBO Max now. Everybody should watch it. But um, the two finalists, the first movie was called Ne, which again is like the Korean word for like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and it opens with this Korean guy that's talking to his buddy on the phone. And he's like, what the fuck, man? I told you to pick a nice spot. And his buddy's like, that's the nicest Korean spot in like the town. And he's like, no, I was looking like steak and wine. What are you talking about? Oh, you know, girls love cultural shit. Just order in Korean. And he goes, I don't know Korean. I don't know Korean. What are you talking about? And spoiler alert, like maybe fast forward if you don't want to hear the end, but he's on this date with this white woman and he's trying to order in Korean, completely failing, really, really bad. It's such a great scene. And she, things get climactic and she gets irritated at somebody in this Korean restaurant and starts yelling at them in Korean. And it turns out she's known Korean this whole entire time and he's like, you've known this whole entire time, why didn't you tell me? And she was like, well, you, you never asked. It never got brought up. Right. And if, if that's like the best way to do it. You yeah. were never asked as a white person, don't start speaking 
a language to somebody who you just assume knows that language. Can you imagine if she just started talking to him because he's Korean? Yeah, it, it's, it's insane because that really happens all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> Ong Young. Okay. Like, all right, good job. And as a white man, it's hard for me to, to emphasize it enough. I feel like, you know, we said, obviously, white people listen to white people to some extent, but like, to your point earlier, you know, we only know what we know. Some people legitimately don't know any better. And that's fine. If after you're corrected, you take actions to not do it again. If you're the dickwad that's yeah. like, oh, then you, you do know, they got that. mad about it. Like, let's now this is fun. No, yeah. get the fuck out of here. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think once you've been around a block a few times, you can spot those people from a mile away. Oh. And it's up to you then as a person of color or as that person being objectified, whether how you want to handle it, you know? Yeah, and I think, like you just said, you'll be able to identify the ones that don't know any better and are willing to learn and listen. Mm-hmm. And you'll see the others that are, no, that person just needs to put in their place. Totally. And I think that it's important to give everybody a fair chance to express themselves. Right. You can't, for example, you can't just learn someone's star sign and decide that you don't like them because your star sign doesn't cooperate with their star sign. That doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> you can't look at someone based on their face and decide that you don't like them. Well, if you do, yeah. you're just as bad as the person who like participates in cultural appropriation against you, you know? Right. But again, it's double standard. And it's the choices you make. Once you think it, thinking is one thing. Processing it is another. It's having it exit through your mouth. <laughs> is a complete other thing and then handling it after it exits your mouth is a completely other thing it's a whole fucking process and it happens so fast you know yeah and if steps one through three happen super fast and you can't stop yourself or you make the realization after it leaves your mouth fine but that's where step four comes in very heavily that now how do i fix this or how do i handle you know a, acknowledge it. If you had, if you can acknowledge in your mind that that probably wasn't in good taste or whatever, mm-hmm. acknowledge it out loud so that they understand, hey, I fucked up. I see that I did this and yeah, yeah. I see it. I got it. Yeah. And then, and then B, ask for forgiveness, uh, you know, apologize, but also like really evaluate why did I let it slip so easily? You know, there's there's something in your mind that said, I'm comfortable enough to do this. And yeah. whether whether that's a, I hate the term colorblind when people, uh, I'm colorblind, I don't see skin color. Yeah. The, the big problem with that, I understand the, the idea behind it, but the big problem with it is if you don't see the color of someone else's skin, then you can't acknowledge that they've went through different things than you've went through. Yeah, if you don't see color, you don't see me. Yeah. I think that, you know, I grew up with my parents saying they're colorblind. I don't see color. I grew up with everyone saying that. And I think that that's a really, I it's considered 
an outdated phrase. Right. People who use that phrase don't mean any harm. It's just outdated and they haven't been told that yet. And they haven't been explained as to why. When you say I'm colorblind and I don't see color to me, you completely reject the fact that I am anything. Because when I walk out the door, the first thing people see is my color. And the way people treat me when I'm outside of this house is my color. And the thing that makes me me and the thing that you know, I had to fight my whole entire life to accept for myself and to be the strong person in front of you now is my color. So yes, you're not using my color against me, for sure not, get it. But that sentence doesn't mean that. You can get rid of that fancy sentence that you think sounds really good, but actually isn't. You can just say, hey, I see you for you. And I think it's great that you're an Asian American person in my life standing in front of me today. Not, oh, oh I don't see color, I'm colorblind. Because you're in denial of people's culture. Yeah, it, it totally invalidates that person. That, totally. Oh, I, I don't see color. Like, the I literally used this on someone, I don't know, a year or two ago. They made that statement and I said, okay, well, do you see hair color? Because that's the same thing in white people. That's if you good. don't see oh, true. Red for, for a redhead, then what the fuck are we talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. It, and to piggyback on the earlier statement, I think if, if you were to experience someone saying something wrong to you, like, ooh, that is not PC. Uh, for that person, if you're that guy or girl, or who, if you're that person, that person that you just offended does not have to forgive you after you apologize a thousand percent and they're not here if they do or if they do not forgive you no one's here to teach you right i'm not going to teach you why that's wrong go figure it out read a book but yeah. you're going to know it's wrong based on my reaction and me not forgiving you and that doesn't make me an asshole that doesn't make me entitled that doesn't make me anything but what i am and I accept me for me, and you apparently don't. And that's totally a you problem. And when that person doesn't accept your apology and doesn't take the step to explain to you, that means that they don't feel that their energy <laughs> is worth, you know, putting on you when you can just, I don't know, figure it out. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think within that, you know, we've, I think this all obviously ties into mental health. Uh, we've not directly tied it into some of it, but like if anyone is listening to this and can't see how this correlates to mental health, like you need to, to reach out to someone mm -hmm. and start asking questions because, you know, I think one of the underlying messages here is as an, a Korean American yourself, there's this you grew up without an identity and we're kind of washed whitewashed into an identity mm -hmm. through school start to find yourself and realize okay i'm still that same person but i'm not that cult
culture and there's more to me than than that show and i think what people need to understand is that you know all of these things like you just said you're you're a strong person today but that's all weighed on you over your life and obviously still does and will and the fact that we as a society cannot understand how something as sim- quote unquote simple as being colorblind mm-hmm. is a problem and affects someone's mental health mm-hmm. is a real fucking problem. Yeah. I think, you know, to, to really enhance the topic of mental health, I think there's a very large parallelism of mental health as when I grew up and then mental health as an Asian American adult. I grew up in a little bedroom community called Brandon, South Dakota. That is a 10 minute drive from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That is right next, like you can walk to the Minnesota border just to paint everyone a picture. And mental health just wasn't really a thing. And the thing that you needed to do was pray and go to church. What, you're sad? What are you talking about? Are you not praying? Well, then you're not praying hard enough. Go pray go to church. Well, then you need to start going to youth group. Well, are you reading your Bible every day? And the, the idea of mental health just was not accepted. And because of that, people don't get help. And to this day, Sioux Falls, South Dakota is ranked. You're going to rank it. Rank is the wrong word, not to be disrespectful but it is the number one uh, place in the United States uh, for the highest amount of teen suicides. And many people wonder why that is. And as a person who lived there and has lost many of their friends due to this, it's because no one stops and says, mental health is important. And you know what, if, if, you have a brain and your brain is sick and you go to the doctor and your doctor says, Hey, here's some Lexapro, you know, it's going to be really great. Then why is that not accepted? Cause I'm pretty sure if there is a Jesus, Jesus wants you to be happy. Jesus wants you to take those drugs. Jesus wants you to have happy mental health. What is it that it's just not accepted and correlated. And when you, fast forward to you know being an asian adult it's the same thing it is the same exact thing you're not working hard enough but you're sad about money well then work harder well you're you know this and that it's just constant denial of the fact that everybody has a different brain chemistry and some people just need to get help for it and there's nothing wrong with that you know it's just never a resource so looking at the um on nami for people that have heard previous episodes i reference nami a lot the national alliance of mental illness um non-hispanic asians the annual prevalence of mental illness among adults in non-hispanic asians is 14.4 percent so 14 percent of all asian americans suffer from some form of mental illness mm-hmm. to put it in perspective uh non-hispanic white so me 
is 22%. There's a hell of a lot less of you guys, mm-hmm. but not that much difference in percentage. Mm-hmm. And like, what I don't think people really grasp is the gravity of that. That 14% of the people, the whole population of Asian Americans has mental illness, whether it's from racism, brain chemicals, you know, the upbringing, whatever it is, it shouldn't matter. It's not being talked about enough. And I think that, you know, was said between you and I on Instagram is that I don't think that you guys, it's becoming more present now you know netflix has some some korean documentaries and some korean tv shows and other i think there's some japanese ones but Mm -hmm. the point being they're just now really starting to go hey we need to represent this part of the culture and show what some of this is really like Mm -hmm. and for so long it hasn't been there and then like you said people are wondering regardless of skin color well, why are these kids killing themselves? Mm-hmm. What do they have to be sad about? Mm-hmm. A fucking lot. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, kids. Yeah, one hundred percent. And it's having more things on Netflix and having more Asian youth or youth in general. Well, let's focus on Asian youth. Asian youth open up about these things and bringing awareness. This is all incredibly new. There's this. There's this movie on Netflix called Soul Searching and mm-hmm. it's it's really great. I recommend it. It's like the breakfast club for Koreans. And there's um, intergenerational conflict between a teacher and a student. And the teacher projects his issues with his son on this student and the student projects his issues with his father on this teacher. And there's a point in the movie, this won't spoil anything, it just is what it is, where they sit down and the student's like, I, he's asked, why is he like this? And he's like a, re- you know, rebel without a cause. Right. And he's, he just talks about his dad and how his dad, sometimes I wish he was dead because he doesn't listen to me. He never asked me how I am. You know, all of these things of like, he never just talks to me. It's always trying to yell at me for what I do wrong and correcting me. And the teacher response to that as you don't get it he's a korean man he never learned how to express his feelings he never learned it so you need to forgive your father and so i think the whole entire concept of mental health in asian culture is because of that because showing emotion or vulnerability is complete weakness and you're not raised talking about your feelings you're not raised talking about the bully in school you just gotta suck it up and do it and so i think my generation and a little ahead of me have really gotten out of their way to try and break that stigma and we're now just seeing it we're now just seeing like squid game is the number one watched ranked TV show in the US on Netflix. I was thrilled. I couldn't even believe it. I highly recommend it. It is so good. But the fact that everyone is now, you know, texting me, like, do you watch good? Or when Parasite won the Oscar. Right. There are things where it's like, yeah, that's wonderful. Whoop dee. But like, 
that took a long time. It took a long time to get to a point where Daniel Day Kim, AKA my husband, would (laughs) talk to Senate and make it illegal for Asian hate to happen to Asian people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not a new idea, but it kind of is based on how the Asian community now latches onto it because it's, it's becoming not a weakness anymore. It's becoming strength and we're all in this together. But there is a lot of the Asian community who still say, stop complaining, shut your mouth, put your head down and keep going. Yeah. You know, just do what they say. (laughs) Which just fuels the the mental health struggle that Mm -hmm. much more. And a a stat that I've thrown out a couple times, I think on the other podcast more so, but um, 78% of people that die by suicide are male. So to your point about the show, like the, you know, he's a Korean man. So a, he's misrepresented in all of media. He's raised in a culture. And I think, I think it's male culture in general, to some extent, the whole, you don't show like you're a man, man up, like, carry on provide for people whatever but then you know the the big issue is they don't open up because it's weakness and you know viewed as weakness even though it's not it's being a human being um and then you know 78 percent of all people that die by suicide are male because they use much more fatal means obviously like it's usually guns or hanging themselves whereas women typically cut or pills and your body rejects obviously pills at a certain point so it's harder to overdose than it is to shoot yourself in the head and like obviously we don't condone any of the methods but i think it's important to talk about the fact that especially to your point the misrepresented or underrepresented Asian culture truly feels like the answer is shut up, put your head down, work harder. Mm-hmm. When the real answer is there's help out there, talk to someone better and start understanding why your your brain is acting the way that it's acting. Yeah. It's okay to feel this way, but it's not okay to not do anything about it. I think yeah. it's really important to talk about suicide. It's yeah. incredibly important because everybody has a feeling sometimes where they would just rather be dead. As casually or as intensely as you'd like to be that, almost every single, I have yet to meet someone who's like, I love it. No, yeah. sometimes you have days where you consider that it's natural to think, what would people say at my funeral? Like there, yeah. it's, it's natural to think about your absence in this really crazy world, in these people's lives that you have in your, in your life. But I think that if you talk about suicide, if that was more of an open dialogue, so much, you would, you would be so heard and so seen as a person who has had friends where we talk about that. And, you know, I had a friend in high school who 
we, you know, we were just angsty as shit and all our friends were dying. And we would drive around and truly just talk about if we were to do it, this is, if I were to do it and just letting you know, safe space, this is how I would do it. Right. Because right. you think that there's, n it's totally natural to think that. It's also totally natural to share it. It's not good to do it, right? Right. And it's like, if you start planning it, then you need to tell someone so that way you hold accountability and you can get help. But yeah. I think at the same time, you know, that, that friend did commit suicide. Right. So there's that, I think people don't talk about it because there's that fear that they will do it. And you Which, know what they might. And well, there's actually been studies that, that show, I'm going to really fuck up the percentage on this one. So I'm not going to throw it out. It's a overwhelming majority of the time. People that talk about suicide are less likely. Or right. if you ask a friend like, hey, are you thinking about suicide or have you thought about suicide? It actually shows in a lot of studies that that person is less likely to do it because someone has addressed it. Someone's inquired about That's it. not to say that they won't do it. Right. But it it's not because someone addressed it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there. so there's two really famous poets, um, Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton from like very long time ago. And poet laureates, and they became really good friends because of poetry. And they lived in Boston. And they were both incredibly obsessed with suicide, like very engrossed yeah. in suicide, the concept, how people do it. And Anne Sexton said that she could never use a gun because she doesn't have the guts to do it. She doesn't have the guts to do it and she doesn't want to make a mess. Like that, those were very impactful words. And so her way to go were pills. So that's really interesting that you said that, but they would, go to bars together and they would they would look at life as such like a fickle thing you know right and they would park in the loading only zone in front of the ritz carlton and they would sit at the bar knowing full well that their car is going to be towed but whatever this is life and fuck life and they would talk in detail about how they're going to commit suicide and they both did it exactly right. to how they would they said they would but and people get really upset over that story. People get really up in arms about it. But I think it's yeah. beautiful because that is a kind of friendship that you can totally have with someone, but that's like a deep relationship. That's a really deep, rare, safe space that yeah. people have had. And you just know full well that it's not forever. People right. change or you know, with my friend, I had that with him. We had that special moment of being seen in the most vulnerable possible way. And when you do that, when you share with that person, if I were to do it, this is how I would do it. And you accept that information. If you don't stop them and go, I actually don't want to know. That's one thing. Right. If you invite that just like you invite that story and that plan, you need to accept the fact that that might happen. Yeah. 
you know yeah and i think obviously we want to point this out again that by no means yeah don't do it (laughs) means are we condoning it no not at Um, all no 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 don't commit suicide yeah my my brother committed suicide about three and a half years ago and by no means do i condone or justify what he did Mm -hmm. but looking back on everything i can understand why and i think that's really the key here is if you have that relationship obviously it's my brother so we should have a deep connection mm-hmm. um i can i can totally understand why he thought that was the right move for him and my peace of mind is that he doesn't hurt anymore you know yeah. he's not battling those demons anymore yeah. and all that yeah do i would i in a fucking heartbeat bring him back if I could yes mm-hmm. by no means did I ever want him to commit suicide mm-hmm. but to your point there's also man I don't know how to how to say this without it sounding like we're we're justifying or glorifying it there is a certain beauty to it in the sense that yeah. he's free yeah. from everything that hurt him yeah. and that's what matters to me is yeah. You know, am I still angry about it a lot of days? Absolutely. Do I still wish I could pick up the phone and, and call him? No. Am I glad that I can't call him and him be crying, hurting, in pain? 100%. I, oh yeah, I totally, you just read me like a book. I 100%, that's how I view it as well. But you know what? And I'm sure you know just as well as I do, it took a lot of work to get there. Yeah. Like, absolutely. My very best friend, when I was 13, committed suicide. That was the first person in my life to do it. And she lived a torturous mental, mental situation. And, you know, she was in and out of um, institutions and she just, it, it, wasn't going well. And we would also talk about these things. Um, and in South Dakota, if you commit suicide, you go to hell and it's not justified and it's absolutely a sin. And when that person dies, don't think about them anymore. You're like out of, you know, out of conversation because you're in hell. It it writes you out of, out of all history. And like, that's one of the super fucked up things about extreme religion is what i'll say but mm-hmm. a lot of religion oh depression's a sin suicide's a sin and depression it's i don't agree sin. with being the fact that they couldn't get help to avoid it <laughs> absolutely and that's i think that's my point is like so you want to preach about jesus and how great he was and he took in all walks of life and you like, don't but you're shutting out the people yeah. that are depressed and you don't want to talk to the homeless guy or the girl that got pregnant at 15, especially by rape. Like what the fuck? It's the shiny veneer. It's just the shiny veneer of biblical tellings, at least yeah. in my experience as a very intense Christian growing up because it was the only thing to do. Uh, it, you did not focus on the icky things. You focus on the beauty of it. And 
all those things you just listed aren't considered beautiful in the church and people lose sight of that and people will choose to see what they want to see and i think that when something like that happens when you lose somebody to suicide which many people have many people will there's a part of you that of course if you could pick up the phone and call them again if you could be with them again if you could listen to them laugh because it did happen <laughs> they were happy they you know happy things were going on it you would in a heartbeat and at the same time you are so happy that they don't feel that horrible thing that you couldn't help them with yeah but that it's like a tennis match in your brain absolutely and it's constant just love love of like there's this and there's this there's yeah i wish i could bring him back x y and z and there's but and the reason why this has to happen these two things need to be leveraged is because there's something in you that needs to rationalize it yeah and the only way to do that is to give kind of a respect to them. Yeah. I think that um, I could get the story completely wrong, but the there's a band called Fickle Rabbit. Um, really great. They're like a cooler Mumford and Sons. Okay. I'm sure a lot of people hate me for comparing those two. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just, <laughs> yeah, off the cuff. But the lead singer, who's an amazing songwriter, um, committed suicide. And he would always talk about it. And the way that he committed suicide was he walked into a river and drowned himself. Now, people listen to his music where he talks about suicide. And it, I think it's, there's a beautiful kind of respect to that. Right. Like there's a concept in my mind of like, You, you, people try so hard to be happy every single day, whatever that vision of happiness is. And when you look at someone who wanted to be happy and that was their end game to become happy, there's just a part of me that's like, yeah, <laughs> okay. You know, a part of me, right. you just have to accept that as you did what you had to do. And yeah, I don't want, I never wanted you to do that. And yeah, that's not how I would want anyone in my life to go. But you did what you had to do. I have to respect that, you know? Yeah, and I, I think the other example that I use a lot is Chester from Lincoln Park. Ugh. You know, for so long, he's, he's talked about all these super heavy fucking things through their mm -hmm. music. But then like, so one more light the last album before he committed suicide yeah. if you actually go back and a listen to it but b even just reading the song titles which i have next to me now okay it's a it's a suicide note the opening track is nobody can save me <sighs> very very first track is nobody can save me i don't think i've listened to this record good goodbye is track number two talking to myself battle symphony Ooh. invisible heavy 
Sorry for now. Oh, wow. Um, halfway right, one more light, and sharp edges. Like, obviously, we, we grew complacent with him, right? Well, he always writes about these sad topics. Yeah. But if you actually go back and listen to this album, I really believe that at least at the time of writing it, whether he intended on doing it around that time or not, Mm -hmm. I think at the time of writing it, he knew he was going to kill himself. Obviously, it didn't happen for a little while after that. Mm -hmm. But then his wife um, shared a photo after some time had passed, obviously. She had to grieve, which is understandable. Yeah. But it was a photo of him with their kids, smiling, looking out over a beach, three days before he committed suicide. Ugh. And it's like... Yeah, it's, it's this, people always say, and I know you can attest to this, when you lose someone to suicide, the first thing most people say is, well, I just didn't see them as that person, or I, you know, they didn't I'll seem like they were hurting. Selfish. Yeah. And it's like, why didn't, didn't they see it? Because you didn't, yeah. because you weren't looking, you know, I, I won't give his name, obviously, but one of my uncles at my brother's funeral walked up to me and said man i just you know never thought he'd be the type and i'm like hmm. Hmm. Were, were you really around then or you know how engaged were you because what are you basing that comment on <laughs> yeah like my brother as long as i can remember had demons that he was fighting so did you choose not and that uncle religious so I think that played a factor that, well, we don't talk about those things, so we don't look at those things. Mm. But, you know, to the point with, with, like, Chester there, like, these songs helped so many people stay alive because they relate to them and everything. Yeah. And same, same with the artists that you're talking about. Like, so many people are going, man, this guy fucking gets it. And we don't stop to, to think a lot of times that just because someone's famous – Robin Williams is another great example. Yeah. Just because someone's famous and we love the work they put out doesn't mean that they're not fucking hurting. Everybody hurts, man. Not to really literally quote him, <laughs> but it's so true. Like it's people prefer to see the version of you that they want to see. Yes. Which of course you wouldn't have thought that quote he was the type because that's not how you chose to see him right did he want you to i'm sure he didn't want you to see him that way either the opposite you know i mean yeah there's a part of you that's just like sure feels like an insensitive question comment but yeah you know like if i if if that happened to me if i just left the world I would want only good things to be <laughs> running through people's right. <laughs> you know? Right. And I, I think I think that is a, a key factor, too, when it comes to the topic of suicide. And like we've mentioned, remembering those people, it's okay to talk about their deaths. I talk about my brother's death to people because somewhere in his story, it's going to help someone else. Yeah. But I also talk about all the awesome shit that my brother did. My of brother course. was an amazing fucking dad. He was 
great at track when he was in high school, you know, and those are the things that we want people to remember, you know, you've got things I'm sure about your friends that, man, I, I wish people could have heard them play guitar or, you know, like, man, if they would have just saw this person's art, like how much different would it be? And it's, it's that double-edged sword of, of solace for us. Mm -hmm. I, I want you to, to see and, and kind of almost wish that you could have experienced that person. But at the same time, selfishly, to some extent, I'm trying to relive their best moments too so that that acceptance comes in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, based on the truth of the relationship you have with that person, you know, you'll, you'll never forget the bad things. Right. You'll always choose to look at the good, but you're always going to respect the bad you know like i think that a lot of people look at death and you know, no matter how it is and they neglect the bad nope i'm not going to think about bad things because that's yeah. not in respect to that person but well, for me at least um i have to validate the bad because there, like i said there, it's hard to explain but there is a level of respect that you just people just, you know, again, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And if you don't understand that mental torment, and if you don't realize that that mental torment can happen to anyone, i.e. Robin Williams, yeah. um, then you'll never, you will never really understand. And that's the thing where it's like, I hope you never understand. I hope people never, ever lose someone to suicide. Um, I hope there are people that never ever have to experience the dark side of mental health. Uh, but the reality is, is that more often than not, in some sort of way, you know, you will. And the difference now is that we're all talking about it. The difference now is that we can be on podcasts and talk about suicide, you know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I think that when people commit suicide, the aftermath for you is a comp all hues of the rainbow, if that makes sense. Like yeah. the aftermath for you, mourning, grieving, coming to terms, viewing yourself in a way of like, I mean, it's pretty natural to be like, would I ever do that? Right. And there's always been a part of me of like, you know, I recently in that same friend group um, a year ago, uh, lost another person in that same friend group just a year ago. And I didn't find out until later I got a phone call. And, you know, I totally, I was sad. Right. But there was a part of me that was like, I've known his life for most of his life. Right. And I think accountability is really important. And the rest of this friend group all got together after the funeral. 
and they said to one another, no more, no more death. Yeah. If we really get to that point, we're all going to call one another because we can't do another funeral of this friend group. Yeah. Like talking to that person, we were both like, wow, we should have done that when we were 13. Right. But when you have that happen to you, when you lose someone like that, you never imagine that you would lose another person like that. You'd never imagine, you know, and it's, I think that's what's really important, especially when you talk about your mental health. I'm very open, probably too open about my mental health because if I ever do decide to do anything or, you know, if I ever have to battle through those feelings, I want people to fucking know. Right. I want people to know. Uh, you know, I also like, it's, it's the same with like, um, I've been sober for a little over a year awesome. and I talk about it a lot Yeah, because I enjoy being sober, um, for many different reasons. But when I slip up, which very well could happen slash probably will, I want everyone to remind me of the time that I was expressing how much I love being sober and why. Yeah. That is accountability. And it's those people who come back to you and say, okay, all right, yes, you're bummed out. Yes, I remember when this happened. Yeah, I remember when this happened, but that's not what defines you. All the bad things, all the mental health battles is not what defines you. When you think about your brother, you don't just think about the bad things. Right. And that's not how you define him. Of course you think about the bad things. That's something you went through. That's not how you define your brother. Right. And that's not what anyone should define any person in their life as. Um, this isn't the first time someone said this. It's not an original. But we need to start calling mental illness a mental injury. Because yeah. the moment we call it an injury, the moment we open ourselves to healing, but when we call it an illness, it's almost like a terminal situation that we can't heal from. And when people put that on you, when people put on the bad experiences that you inevitably will go through and watch another person go through if they deal with mental health, they call it an illness and they don't see the possibility of you being your best you in healing. Yeah. 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 One of the kind of analogies that I use a lot of times is for, for mental ill injury is a broken arm. You know, yeah. we're, we're quick to, to help somebody that has a broken arm. Oh, you need help with those groceries or you need help opening that door, whatever. But because we can't see depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. any of these things, mm -hmm. we, we just write up a real thing. And I've said this before on this podcast, people that suffer from any sort of mental injury or mental illness, depending on your terminology, um, they're, they're not asking you to fix them. They just want you to know that sometimes I need a little extra time. Sometimes I need someone to, to hold me up. You know, the shit gets heavy. Again, if I had a broken leg or a broken arm and I'm carrying eight grocery bags, you're probably going to come over and be like, Hey, can I grab? I'm not asking you to do the whole job. Just help me out a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I'm not giving you, expressing my feelings is not giving you the emotional responsibility for them. I just need a person to hear it instead of a white wall because I'm a human being. And I think what's important for the person who's giving out these feelings is to really be aware of the person that can that, does that person even want it? Does that person want to know? Is that person really there for you? You know, that goes back to your, yeah, that goes back to your statement earlier about support circles. Make sure that you know who's in the support circle Mm -hmm. because like you just said, like if I go to, to Jason and I'm like, man, today was a fucking heavy day, but Jason isn't one that wants or is a prepared to handle any of that. Does zero good. Yeah. Am I doing anything? Yeah. I might as well be talking to the white wall. But if I go to Matt and I'm like, bro, today was a fucking heavy day. Cool. Come over. Let's, let's do dinner. Let's talk about shit. Mm -hmm. That's the person that you need to, to really be invested in. Mm -hmm. Not to say that, you know, Jason may not be a good dude, but know who the appropriate people to talk to are as you approach crisis so that you can make sure that you're safe. You know, the Mm -hmm. safe place is often in the ears of maybe not even somebody that you've known that long. You know, you and I have gotten very candid very quickly. (laughs) And and this is our first real conversation. If you love talking about mental health, there's really no... Right. But I I think that's the point that I'm getting at here is whether you've known someone for an hour, like you and I have now, Mm -hmm. or known them for 20 years, that person that you've only known for an hour may be better equipped and better able to be the support that you need. Yeah. But that also takes time. Yes. hundred percent. And it takes a lot of disappointment. It takes a lot of people not being able to handle your load, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm 36 and man, probably up until I was about 30, I couldn't really name anyone that I was like, I trust this person with these conversations. Mm-hmm. So I would bottle a lot of it up. Mm-hmm. And then you know, group or finally asking that hard question of your friend group that, hey, if I'm struggling, would you be able to listen to me or can we just hang out so that i'm not alone you know Mm -hmm. uh, that's another misconception that i want to touch on briefly we talked for a very long time and i hope people listen this far uh but the the thing is like probably 80 percent of the time all that person wants is to not be alone whether that's getting in a car and listening to music and driving around town hanging out, watching a movie, going and grabbing dinner. Like, they just don't want to be alone with their own thoughts. Mm -hmm. They're not asking you to fix them. Just give Mm -hmm. them comfort and company. Yeah, they just want to be seen. You know, a a buddy of mine just recently said, he's like, that's the most important thing for anybody is just to be seen. Because it can be so misinterpreted or interpreted. Um, yes. just making up words. I think as well to piggyback off of what we just said is that if you are the person who's expressing those things to someone you think you trust, don't feel shame about it. 
it took me a long time to I put my fence through hell literal hell while I was trying to figure out my mental health they experienced a lot of trauma because of me they endured a lot of just general shit that had they not been friends with me they would have completely dodged yeah there's a guilt there but those people that stuck around and are still here now will tell you they tell me no you know it was my pleasure here to serve like it's not that's what a friend is you know yeah. and it takes a really long time and sometimes yeah it takes really bad things to happen but you really when people say you're not alone you really are not you're not alone yeah a hundred percent they just haven't been able to cross the finish line with you in, in a challenge you know yeah 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 i think it takes often it takes someone opening up for someone else to open up totally so like, your your friend may not say anything to you about the struggles that they go through until you're like hey man i'm fucking struggling with this and they go fuck thank god i have somebody else to talk to like this is what i've been going through like oh shit cool right yeah there's a sense of you know someone was talking to me about vulnerability and how we've completely uh mis misguided the term yeah. you know vulnerability we think that it's weakness we think that it's you know not good we think that it's cowardice all these negative things when vulnerability is one of the best things that you can do not just for yourself but the person next to you you're vulnerable and completely just giving it all out and you feel that acceptance by the person who's receiving it that is the best human connection you can have but you'll never experience it if you don't do it and if you get rejected you get rejected move on but the moment the moment we become more vulnerable everything just implodes and things will be easier for you You'll accept a lot of things. You'll learn to love someone fully. You'll learn to love someone. The example they gave me was you're in a relationship and you love them very much and they cheat on you. You should, you're upset, sure. But at the end of the day, if the person you love is happy, whether it's be with you or with someone else, you should be happy for them. That is pure vulnerability. That is pure love. Yeah. And that's, it takes a lot of work. It's like the amazing race to find. Yeah. But if you just open up, you'll easily find it. It's not that hard. You know, like if you just yeah. have conversations like you and I are having, your support system will be bountiful. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Uh, one thing I want to touch on with your, your vulnerability statement, you know, mm -hmm. it, it has been mis misdefined for a lot of people. I talk a lot about the, the importance of words. Mm. Know what you're saying. If you're just, oh, I failed a test. I'm so depressed. Like you're taking away value of the word depressed. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we talked about suicidal ideation or, you know, talking about, oh, I want to kill myself. I got a flat tire. Just, just fucking shoot me. Like yeah. you're, you're taking away value to these things. So it's important 
that you understand what words you're using to describe mm -hmm. all of these feelings. Are you sad that you failed a test? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Are you depressed about it? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Do you have anxiety because you have a test? Maybe. Are you just nervous about the test? Most likely. You know, there's... The way you're careful with words is how people will define you when they need to reach out to you. Right. You just say, oh, shoot me with every single thing. If I have suicidal thoughts, you're not the person. You're not I'm the person I'm calling. Exactly. But and, you could you know, be. Right. You, just, <laughs> you know. Yeah. If, if you're conscious of what you're saying and you're, if you're impactful with it, you know, like intentional, I should say. If you're intentional with your words, you will properly define feelings and emotions, and then people can come to you and say, hey, I am depressed. Mm -hmm. I need someone to talk to. Mm -hmm. But if you're the one that, you know, we're out of fucking chocolate milk, I'm so depressed, like, cool, you don't know what depression is, I'm not coming to you. Yeah. And, listen, some people don't. Right. Good for them. Yeah. Very jealous. Yeah, and that's exactly. okay too. I think that there are a lot of people who, you know, they look at it and they're like, oh, I feel like I should experience this because everybody experiences this. And I'm like, no, no. If you have never experienced these things, that's fantastic. If you don't have to take a pill to be like this, that's great. But if you also do, that's good too. Like everybody is different. <laughs> Everyone's different. Um, but I think the worst thing you can do is not express how you can be available in any kind of way towards the people in your life. I want every single person to know that they're seen and that, yeah, we just met, but if you need something, I want to be that kind of person. That's right. the person I want to be, not only for you, but for myself. Because once you're that person and you express yourself that way, you will gain company who will as well do the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think that if you take your mental health seriously, you're going to learn resources and you're going to talk about it more and it, it's going to become a lot more simple. I think yeah. growing up, it was so complex. Like, oh, you're going to take medication? Why? When in reality, if you were to go to your doctor and your doctor said, oh, you're low on zinc, Go to Rite Aid and get some zinc vitamins. You right. would not argue with that. You would go, oh my God, I need to eat more spinach. Let right. me go do that and everything will be hunky-dory. But when it comes to your brain, somehow that's not okay. Yeah. It's not that difficult. It's just like having vitamins for zinc. Yeah. And yeah, you need and to I, surround I, yourself with people who are like, you're thinking too hard about this. Just go do it and you'll be happier. I think that's a hugely important thing is, you know, zinc, I, I've used the anemic thing before. Hey, you're anemic because you don't have enough iron. You need to go take this. Cool. I'm going to go take that so that I have enough iron and I'm not anemic anymore. Yeah. Hey, you have depression. It's because you don't have enough of these chemicals in your brain. If you take this, this will help. Yeah. Cool. I should take that. Yeah. Bipolar, the same thing. Like your your brain doesn't regulate these chemicals. This yeah. will help keep them in bounds. Cool. I'm gonna go take that. Yeah. Like you said, why is it 
bleeding below the neck, oh yeah, cool. I'll I'll listen to that. But the second somebody talks about your brain needing medicine, well, what do you mean? That's not okay. I think it's it all stems back to that vulnerability of everything's emotion. Yeah. That is like, you know, that's your treasure chest of emotion right there. And you, yeah. you're not you're not you don't that's not okay and your your yours isn't good. Why? <laughs> it's just like yeah. you know, I mean you just straight up can't fucking control it. I think that that's another thing is, you know, I have bipolar and this is a recent diagnosis. Although there's a part of me that was like, you may, might probably actually, you probably, right. uh, but you, there was a recent time where I had to work in an office. I don't work in offices. I'm a musician, but I had to, and I did it. And when you're in an office, you're under a microscope. And so yes, <laughs> that happens, people see literally every single part of you. They see your body language, they see they, every everything. And I was going through a low, like for people who don't understand what bipolar is, very often you'll have a low. And what a low is, is you can't even move your body. You can't, you can't get out of bed. And when I say you can't get out of bed, you can't move. It's your brain is just like no fucking way. And I had to go to work. So I had to move. So I would wake up after not sleeping at all. I would wake up, force myself to get out of bed, move around, get to work. It was like swimming through tar is a great metaphor. Yeah. And I, I just, I had to tell my boss about it. Cause I was like, this is going to suck for him if I don't just tell him. And so I was like, Hey, um, so I have bipolar and uh, you're either this, you're this, or you're this. And right now I'm this and I can't control it. And it sounds like I should be able to because my reactions aren't desirable. And I, you know, I'm not eating. And there's a lot of things where it's for an outsider. It's like, just yeah. take a fucking moment and don't react that way. Or just eat a goddamn cookie. Right. No, it is not like that. It's not like that at all. And the moment I said something to him, he was like, oh shit, okay. Let me know if you need anything. And every single day he'd be like, okay, how are we feeling? And I would give him an honest answer. And eventually it would get to the point where he could also tell like, okay, things are getting a little better. And I'll yeah. go through that low at least once a year and I'll handle it differently every time. But people, it's interesting because when you're high and like euphoric, people associate that with when you're normal, but they don't associate this as normal either. You know, it's like, you need to love every part of yourself. The moment you find people that love your low end, the moment you find people that are like, wow, you're really thinking about these things. You're really bummed out. You're always bummed out, but let's sit with it it'll be better for everyone, you know? I got really lucky. My boss was like, hey, awesome, okay. I guess we'll get through it instead of being using it against me, which many people have done. Right. But once you've done it enough, you just know that that's an option. You gotta be ready for it. But you do just have to 
again, if you don't know, you don't know. And I don't expect anyone to have any patience with me when it comes to my bipolar. Yeah. It's very hard to manage. And I become impossible to be around. And I get that. <laughs> I don't want to be around me <laughs> during those lows. I 100% get that. I don't expect that out of anyone. But I was recently talking to one of my best friends and I was talking to her about the slow and how I'm getting out of it. And like I said, this diagnosis is relatively new. And I'm talking to her about, you know, my day to day and how it's like crazy taxing. It's so uncomfortable. It's like your body's about to blow up, but it can't because you have something called bones. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just really uncomfortable. And the way that I was talking about it, I guess, was incredibly self-deprecating. Like this happens to me. This has been happening to me my whole entire life. I take medication for it. I'm sober for it. And I still can't get a hold of it. Right. And she was like, Mel, when you talk to other people about their mental health, you're so supportive, you're so understanding, you're so open, you don't give unsolicited I do the same thing. advice. <laughs> and she's like, but when it comes to you, you're so mean to yourself. <laughs> you're so mean to yourself. You beat yourself up. You don't give yourself any of what you give others. What the fuck, man? She's like, if you want to talk about what you're doing wrong, it's that. Like, get a good fucking grip. Yeah. And I just didn't realize it. I didn't realize it. And that, too, is mental illness. Yes. That is it, you know? Yeah, and that's what I was going to say is, you know, like, for me, long-time depression. And I'm the same way as you, to a T. If someone else is opening up to me, whatever, like, cool. I can give you answers. I can be a sounding board, you know, all the positive things that I can put out there. Mm -hmm. But then when I'm with me, like with myself, I'm like, nah, fuck that. Like, this is bullshit. You should be better than this. You, you know, and like you said, self deprecating the fuck out of myself. And like, I've had friends do the same thing to me. Like, well, why do you do that to yourself? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, I've always called it my depression monster. My depression monster is this nagging fucking voice in the back of my mind that says some truly horrible shit. Yeah. And sometimes you can't get it. And it makes you up. hate yourself more, man. <laughs> yeah. It is the worst feeling. And I think what people that don't have any sort of mental illness or mental injury that they don't really understand is how loud that interior voice can be mm -hmm. and like maybe you just need some time to yourself no the last thing i fucking need is to be isolated with this voice in my head yeah i need some again not to fix me to to distract me a lot of times just so that i'm not hearing what that is saying mm -hmm. and like obviously it's not for anyone that doesn't get what we're talking about it's not a literal voice in your head it's not you know like no, it's just you personality it. or schizophrenia yeah it's yeah it's your internal monologue just going hey you really fucked up that project today you know anybody else could have done that right and it's like oh fuck like did i mess that up the opinions well, you yeah, put up yeah. is turning on you <laughs> yeah yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a song by a band called Slaves 
they're actually getting ready to change their band name but um good it's called it's it's called uh <laughs> talk to a friend and it's so the band name slaves it's johnny craig's old band uh it was oh. actually a, about like being a slave to addiction and stuff like that oh, but <laughs> through the- everything that's happened they're like yeah oh. we should probably fucking get rid of that name um but they have a song called talk to a friend and the line in there is i wouldn't talk to a friend the way i talk to myself wow. and it's like man that's so fucking true but how do you turn that voice off and say you know what i wouldn't say that to anyone else why am i saying it to me have you watched uh the docuseries on apple tv it's called the me you can't see no with prince harry and oprah oh fuck you have to watch it they cover yeah. mental health and prince harry is like the ambassador for mental health okay he's yeah. like the face of mental health i love him but they they go through someone with schizophrenia and they actually don't talk about bipolar but they shatter the scary part of it and they make it like she walks you through a life of schizophrenia and like yeah. what happened she wasn't always like that and the upkeep in the hard work she has to do in order to just like be chill it's so interesting and it truly is a person the part of them that you can't see and it is invisible and that's why as a person who struggles with any kind of mental injury you do have a responsibility yeah to keep yourself afloat for sure but you have to talk about it yeah. You have to let people know where you're at. Uh, Carrie Fisher has had bipolar mm-hmm. and um, she talks about it a lot. She's talked about it a lot. She wrote a book about it. Um, but she gave her two personas when she's low and when she's super high names. I think it was like Billy and Joan or something. Yeah. And she just tell people, Billy's here. Billy's here. I am so Billy right now. And I thought it was brilliant because it was like, no pressure. We don't got to get into detail, but I just got to let you know where I am. And ever since, if something's really funky, I always, for my roommates, I'll go downstairs and I'll be like, funk, we're in a funk. So that way they know that they should not take anything literally. If I don't hear them, it's because I'm too busy beating myself up or, you know, like there are things that, you can't expect them to understand and help you if you don't tell them. Right. And that's accountability for yourself too. If I expect myself to get any better at this thing called bipolar, I have to use all of my tools. And my tools are also the people in my life and how I handle it, you know, and how I want to be seen. And if I'm a piece of shit, a lot of people are a piece of shit and they blame it on their mental illness. Right. And it's the choice that they make. And it's really hard to come back from, but I, yeah, I, I saw a post about that, that if, if you are a piece of shit because of your mental illness, or you're using that as justification for being a piece of shit, Mm -hmm. that's fine. But just know that nobody in your life owes you the time to piece of shit to them without re- repercussions and consequences. Totally. You you can be an asshole 
whether you have mental illness or not. You can be an asshole. Everybody can. Live your life. Yeah. But nobody owes you a goddamn a spot in their life if that's how you want to be. Yeah. And I think that every single time someone becomes an asshole and blames it on their mental injury, you give everybody else with that mental injury such a a fucking face. Yeah. Schizophrenia, yeah, terrifying, scary, horrible. But there are people out there that are schizophrenic and are living out in the world and are amazing people and a part of their community and, you know, working amazing jobs and impact your life every single day and you don't know it. You don't know, you know, their battle. It's frustrating when you get, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it. Kanye West. I get very fucking frustrated with that guy. (laughs) I've never really liked him. I don't care what people say. I don't have to like him. Nobody has to like Kanye West. Nobody has to do it. I personally don't. I don't have to listen to his music to feel oozy moved. (laughs) Right. But when he does something ridiculous and hurtful to many people and disrespectful at many respects and blames it on his bipolar, that just encourages this stigma that specifically bipolar get. Like it is considered crazy, quote, crazy and scary. If you watch the TV show Shameless, Mm -hmm. one of the characters, a few of them have bipolar and they're so manic and they're so insane and they start fires and they like kill people. And then you see, you know, a ton of murderers blaming their horrible murders and crimes on schizophrenia. How are we supposed to get back from that? How am I supposed to come back from that? And I think that another, another reason why you need to be verbal about it is to show that not all bipolar people choose the same things to do like Kanye West does, Yeah, you know? And that's why like, yeah, I was just diagnosed, but I want to talk about it because people have such an idea in their head that bipolar is this crazy, scary, fucked up thing. And like, it can be. Yeah. It can be. If I wasn't on medication, I totally, you know, when I wasn't on medication, horrible. I couldn't manage myself at all. I didn't know that. Bad things happened. When I am on medication, everything's good. It's a responsibility I have. But I, I've had this my whole entire life. And when I tell people that, people in my life, they're like, oh my God, I guess. So I've known someone with bipolar this entire time. Yeah. Yeah, you have. Was it that bad? (laughs) Right. And especially, you know, getting a diagnosis. I don't want to make you sound old by saying this late in life, but you know what I mean? Like you, you went 30 years before you were diagnosed. 28, yeah. 28 years, you know, so for 28 years, people are just like, oh, that's just how Mel is. Yeah. But now that you have a diagnosis, people can look back and be like, oh, you know, that time she blew up at the birthday party probably actually was this, not just Mel. I, you know, I, something that I've been working through therapy, love therapy, do therapy. Um, I'm sure you do. Uh, Nothing wrong with therapy. Therapy is great. I something I've been working in therapy is not just feeling empowered about my bipolar, but not looking back 
and being resentful of the fact that I never was diagnosed earlier. I constantly think about if I were diagnosed when I asked my parents, can I go see someone? I think there's something wrong with me, which all the time, all the time. I think the first time I asked that was in sixth grade, Um, but I had to go pray. So whatever. Anyway, um, (laughs) I... (laughs) Or was I totally distracted myself just now. What? <laughs> if you would have been diagnosed in, oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. sixth grade. I, <laughs> I look back and I think of all the bad things that have happened because of my decisions, because of something that I've done. And, you know, like not to quote Brandon Flowers too correctly, but all the things that I've done, oh man, oh man. And I look at it and I see, oh my gosh, my bipolar had so much to play in that. If I knew that I was bipolar, I would not pick up a drink. If I knew that I was bipolar, I for sure would not be participating in Booga Sugar. You know what I mean? Like things would not happen. And because these things happen, bad things happen. But for anyone that's just like recently diagnosed with something and feel the same way, it's completely normal. And sometimes you have to go through something to get to where you are now. You just do. Right. And, you know, that's your story. And now you have complete power to make sure the rest of your life, you know, is good to go. But, like, some, not everybody's lucky enough, you know, to have parents that go, okay, let's, let's, go to th- let's figure out what this is. Right. You know? And you can have your whole entire entire life working on it. I just met somebody that uh, grew up in Nebraska and they went to therapy as a kid. And I was like, what? And both my yeah, friends How does that happen? <laughs> oh my God, you're so lucky. And he was like, lucky? What are you talking about? It was horrible. <laughs> I hated it. And I was like, oh my God, I would be so much more evolved if I started therapy way earlier, you know? But you just have to look at it as this is it. Yes, you went through that. You're stronger because of it. You know. And a big thing that I want to pretty much end on. We I've got two more questions for you, I think. But um, it's you are not your diagnosis. Yeah. I I really want people to know that. Like Mel is not bipolar. Mel yeah. is a person that happens to have bipolar. Yep. I am not depression. I am a person that happens to have depression. Mm-hmm. The Whatever your diagnosis is, is not your identity. So yeah. don't let it eat you up and become your identity. Yeah. Don't be identified in it. You know, be empowered from it. Yeah. I recently found a psychiatrist that has empowered me because of it. First time I've ever felt empowered about mental injury at all, first of all. But to have that realization that if you have a mental injury, if you have depression or bipolar, that depression and bipolar is not driving the bus. It's a passenger on your bus, but you are driving it and you can choose wherever you want to go, however you want to get there in whatever time you want to do it. You know, Absolutely. 
and it's really easy especially if you have that fucking voice in your head to think otherwise but you're not defined by it that's not who you are and you do have control over it you have empowerment over it absolutely yeah so question number one as we wrap up here is Mm -hmm. going to be kind of the stereotypical question for this type of podcast but looking back across your life if you could go back and tell your younger self something about your mental injury what would you what advice would you give yourself oh boy that's a really good fucking question all i feel is emotion i don't have words i think (laughs) you know i think you barely know how to describe your feelings when you're a kid, right? You don't have a lot of words. You haven't learned a ton of words and, you know. Um, and you f- kids feel a lot of shame. They carry it because they don't know how to process it and they live with it for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And you know, I've, I've definitely looked back at my childhood and went, mm, that was bipolar. Or, oh, I was a total asshole because of my bipolar. Yeah. Um, or I would go back and tell little Mel, you know, like, you are exactly where you need to be. Yeah, all these white people are freaking you out and you don't feel accepted and you always get picked last and, you know, people slant their eyes and make fun of you. You have to go through it though. <laughs> like you're good but this isn't it for you it feels like it's it for you but you're going to experience things that make it all make sense everything will make sense someone said to me recently like um it'll all be okay in the end and if it's not okay it's not the end so i don't know if they got it from this song but there's a song by a band called the color morale the song is called i'm gonna fucking forget the name of the song anyway he that's his scream part is uh in the end it'll be okay and if it's not okay then it's not the end i think it's like a japanese proverb or something it it may be but i said that percent yeah i a hundred percent agree with it because like whether it's through religion that you believe that spirituality whatever causes you to start believing that there's a power in it because yeah you're gonna have dark days mm-hmm. and when you don't be okay you're not okay that's fine because this isn't my last term mm-hmm. um you know the nerdy thing for video games if you're still encountering enemies the game's not over you have so much left in your, your story to tell if there are still things that you have to beat. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're a kid, I think it's like, this is it. This is it. Right. It's like, it's so fucking isn't, dude. Like, right. you're all right, you know. But, it, you know, I think that if you do have kids and you're listening to this, please reassure them. <laughs> yeah. No one told me that. No one told me that. Yeah, Absolutely. And then the last one, because I want to end it on more of a upbeat note for you. Jovial note, okay. Uh, what was it like meeting Day Kemp? 
What's it like to what? What was it like meeting DDK? <laughs> okay, guys, listen. All right. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to the APA visionary screening in premiere event, and it was a lot of fun. A ton of Asians were all together enjoying the arts, and we're waiting for the doors to open to go into the theater. And a friend of mine goes, Oh, wow, there's a lot of people here. And I don't. I haven't really scoped around and people right. are, you know, so I don't know. And my buddy goes, I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is over there. <laughs> and I looked at him and he looks at me like, aren't you gonna say something? And I was like, uh, I'm sorry, man. I don't give a fuck about Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know what you're talking right. about. <laughs> and so we sit down. And Daniel Day Kim walks in and I was like, it's totally speechless. And my buddy goes, oh, sorry, Kim, not Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, do you guys understand what he's done for the AAPI community? And now, oh my God, he's the hottest Asian man ever. <laughs> like, I'm just freaking out. I'm freaking out, but I'm like, cool. There's a ton of other Asian celebrities here. You gotta keep your cool. Don't fuck up. So all my friends were like, well, you gotta say something to him. And I was like, I don't think I can go talk to DDK, you guys. This is like insane. I don't think you get it. And so I went to the bathroom. I excused myself to collect myself. Yeah. <laughs> and while I was peeing, I was like, okay, you gotta figure out what you're gonna say. <laughs> You got to figure this out because there's no way you're leaving this event without saying something to him. Right. You got to do it because it's decided. You have to do it. So I come out of the bathroom and everybody has just like, they're like, okay, well, you got to do it. And I go, I don't know. He's in the theater right now. He's talking to the finalists. He's busy. He's working. And he, we're all waiting at the door and he comes out and my friend goes, Now's your chance. Go do it. <laughs> and I, I just, I took a deep breath and I fucking dove in. I was like, Mr. Kim. <laughs> he was like, yes, very annoyed. And I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. I just, I can't not say to you, thank you for everything you've done in the AAPI community. That's all. And I was going to walk away. And he goes, because I get it. That I work with a lot of celebrities. They don't, they're right. people. They don't want to be yeah. like, go fuck off you know yeah and i was like yeah I, that's fine and he goes well you know we're all in this together and i was like i'm sure he said that all the time and i'm like right. no yeah we are but the thing is mr kim is that you gave me so many words to express feelings that i felt my whole life and i didn't have them and you didn't just do it for me you did a lot for a lot of people so that's what I'm thinking you for. All good. I'm going to leave you alone now. And then he kept talking to me. And then he asked for his assistant. And I was like, oh, please, please. You know, I'm just thinking that I'm bothering him the whole time. I'm like, please, sir, yeah. go about your business. You don't have to escort me away. <laughs> I know. I'm like, no, no, no. He's like, no, no, no. It's all good. What's your name? Oh, it's Taven, your Korean name. Blah, blah, blah. It was great. And so I was like, listen. It was great meeting you because it got started to get really businessy. Like, how can I find your music? And yeah. I was like, that. 
someday you will. I just, I don't want to talk about that. I just want to say, you know, thank you. Thank you doing what you're doing. And um, yeah, and then I left and all my friends applauded. And I was like, I just met Daniel Day motherfucking Kim. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's one of those moments I feel like obviously not everyone's ever going to experience like that's a, a limited time thing but it's it's one of those things where like you said when it's a it's a celebrity so that's cool in itself but b like when it's someone that has an impact and in your case gave you words to describe these emotions and these things you've gone through like it's it's almost impossible to put into words the impact that that has because mm -hmm. it's it's whether he obviously he didn't know it so with him not knowing that he's giving you this set of words and this this empowerment he second hand is giving you a strength to get through your life and to kind of just say like fuck it I am proud of who I am and everything I've been through is for a reason. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about meeting celebrities. It's, it's not scary because they're a celebrity. It's scary because they could easily be an asshole. Oh yeah. And like, yeah. DDK could have totally been totally disappointed me. Just waved you off and, you know, walked away. And I it's think that's, but all good. Like I get it. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the thing you said that's super important that I want people to realize, especially if they ever bump into celebrities anywhere, they are fucking human beings. Yeah, they're just, just because you. Right. Like <laughs> like, so, like, and that's a two sided They're just people with a job. Mm -hmm. So, yes, they're, they have human emotions and reactions and all that. But at the same time, you have to understand that because of their job, they get a lot of fucking people coming up to them. Mm -hmm. So if I would say 95% of the time, if they don't interact with you, it is not a personal thing. It's that yeah. they just are at capacity and can't do it. But I will also say, if you're going to approach someone, you better have something good to say. Right, right. Don't just simple, say if you would have went up with just a, hey big fan like okay cool that invites a blow off man yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah i think that's incredibly appropriate just like in the tv show the morning show with jennifer aniston she their, her character talks about how everybody sees her every single morning on this morning show and there's this ownership people feel about her yeah like because they see her every single day they think that they are entitled for some interaction from her. Yep. She doesn't owe you anything. That's a celebrity's life. Like, yeah. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me the time of day. Yeah. I just got lucky. <laughs> and he happened to be super cool, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's everything I've got for you, Mel. Uh, because oh, this man. is still a musician's podcast. What can they expect from you and what's coming out? Um, new EPs on its way. It's a three part listening experience. And um, 
with each song is a music video, which is cool. Um, and it takes a little bit of a different direction than what you're used to. Like you're kind of used to like a slight like female alt rock situation. Um, this is a bit more of like a slower, deeper singer songwriter situation. Um, and it, the goal of it is to have music for, to keep you company in those times where you just sit in your emotion. Yeah. You know, like it's not, sometimes it does not feel like everything's going to be okay. And sometimes it isn't. And like, it's again, the friends that will sit with you and totally just not tell you that. And that's, you know, what I want this EP to be. So that's coming up. Um, playing a show at the Viper Room October 7th. So everyone can come on down. Uh, that's exciting. Tickets are on sale now. And yeah, that's kind of it. I don't know. It's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is exciting. And this will actually go live October the 4th. So cool. people will still have time to get those tickets and get over to the Viper Room and Hopefully. support you. Um, yeah, I'm super excited for you. Uh, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff that you've got potential to do. Um, cool. So I'm, I'm excited for all that. And then I don't think this will be our last talk. Obviously, I think we kind of <laughs> talked about, <laughs> I think we kind of talked about, we'll have you on the other based like really in the music. Uh, but you know, I think we obviously there at the end talked about bipolar and got mm -hmm. a little more in depth on that, but I think having a bipolar episode may be really interesting for some people. So mm. we'll kind of see how, how people react to this and, um, we'll go from there, but I definitely, cool. uh, am excited for you and I really appreciate you taking the two and a half hours now that we've yeah, talked. It almost <laughs> ends up being this way. Everyone's like, oh, so, and then we'll top it off in an hour. And then it's like four hours later. This is the longest podcast. But see, I'm okay with it because like, I'm, I'm not even going to split this up into like two or three episodes because oh, okay. honestly, everything that we talked about all plays into like it's a chain of events. So uh, I think it's one of those things where real conversation is fluid and you know what i mean like mm -hmm. i think what we accomplished through this episode and hopefully people agree with it people and then at the end kind of gave these i i guess kind of throughout we gave here's how you can work with that you know yeah. here's some tips on how to handle these situations and i hope a lot of people will Kind of just gravitate to that and grow so yeah that's everything i really appreciate it uh let me know the ep keep me up to date on all that okay. and we'll uh we'll keep blasting stuff for you as far as the the music side too yeah thanks man listen thanks for sharing your story with me man yeah. i really appreciate that and you know yeah 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 absolutely this is important thanks for having this platform Absolutely. I appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, right. man. Good yep. Bye. Bye. And that was my conversation with Mel Taven. Um, as always, double check the description of this podcast because I want to have links to all of her socials. 
Um, huge shout out to her for taking this long to have this conversation, for being transparent, for being a spokesperson. Um, you know, I've said before, not necessarily on this podcast or even the other one, but I've said before to people that all of the change that we want to see in the world um, around mental health, around societal issues or whatever starts with one person. It starts with, really, it starts with two people. It starts with a conversation. Um, and we had that. And I really hope that there are people that listened to this whole episode, all two and a half hours of it, and really take away some key information that they can use in their life and that they maybe will go get educated on. If there was topics that we talked about that you're not familiar with um, or that you just don't feel like you know enough about, reach out to someone. Ask those questions. 99% of people are more than willing to talk about these things um, to someone that's seeking education, Um, whether that's the bipolar disorder, whether that's depression, suicide, the Asian hate, the Stop Asian Hate movement. Like, no matter what we talked about, hopefully you found value in it. Hopefully you'll be able to grow from it. And I hope that this sparked something inside of you that you can take to your friends or even just implement in your daily life um, and, you know, try to make the world a little bit better of a place. Uh, Mel was awesome. Definitely want to have her back on, uh, for some more conversations, whether it's on this podcast or the other, um, let us know what you guys thought of it. Uh, you know, bold statement, but I think Mel and I really became kind of friends through that episode and got to know each other, you know, quite a bit better. So hopefully, uh, these conversations will keep coming and, you know, we'll see, what's in store for her and what's in store for us and and the movement that we're trying to spark. So as always, guys, I appreciate you taking any time to support us. Make sure you like, subscribe, follow, whatever it is on the streaming platform that you use to listen to this podcast. Uh, That does help so, so much. Uh, Also, make sure you follow Mel on Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, all those places as well, um, because it's just going to help her and, you know, lift her visibility as well. And, you know, I really think she has the mind and the the words and the presence to be a key factor in some of the change that she wants to see, um, that we all need to want to see. So, Again, thank you guys. Um, We're going to end this the same way that we always end it, and that's with the simple remember, guys, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and you make the scene.